Disclaimer. The following content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hollerith. Today we've got an interview with eToro's senior market analyst, Mati Greenspan. Mati is a longtime financial trader based out of Israel. He's often quoted in big financial mainstream media outlets such as Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, and Business Insider. He invests in all kinds of different financial assets like silver, renewables, biotech, but cryptocurrency is at the center of his portfolio. In the interview, we talk about trading strategies, the relationship between the crypto market and the U.S. Federal Reserve, and the possibility of China reversing the ban on Bitcoin trading. An important side note, two days after this interview, Mahdi announced he was leaving eToro. I reached out to him for more information, and Mahdi explained that the parting was bittersweet and he's still very close to the eToro team, but he wanted to go out on his own to pursue his own independent blog writing and newsletter opportunities. A quick reminder, too, while this conversation is by no means an ad for eToro, they are one of our show sponsors, and we can't thank them enough for supporting the work we do on the show. So as you all know, this is not trading or financial advice. Here's my interview with Monty Greenspan. Hey, Monty. Thanks for coming on the show. How's it going? Pretty good, man. Uh, so are you at the eToro office? I am eToro HQ. What goes on there? I saw the video temporarily. We, we turned it off for uh, Wi-Fi purposes, but it looks like it's a, it kind of looks like a trading floor. Yeah, it resembles a trading floor a lot. I'm in the uh, room, which is known as the open space. Uh, I believe there's about 100 employees in this room alone. We've got five full floors uh, in the Champion Tower in Tel Aviv, growing really quickly now. Yeah, you guys are, are a worldwide trading and I, I guess you'd say a social trading platform. When and how did you start working with eToro? So I started here in 2012. Uh, I believe there was about 80 employees back then. My initial role was uh, as an account manager for high equity clients. Uh, so helping them with uh, their portfolios. Uh, I started writing about the markets mostly for my clients and got picked up by uh, our CEO, Yoni Asi. I said, these are really good. So you should just send these out to the whole company. And then I started sending them out you know, internally and then just kind of snowballed from there. Somebody goes, hey, you, you should send these out to the media. You should send these out to clients. And then uh, my newsletter has gotten to where it is now. I'm actually not familiar with your newsletter. What, what's it typically comprise? So the uh, idea here is to find global macro trends. So anything that's going to be moving and uh, clients can invest in. Obviously, there's a strong focus on crypto because that's a big part of uh, what we do here in eToro. And of course, a uh, very volatile market. So a lot of fun to be trading. But I believe that in order to fully understand the crypto market, we need to take a bigger view and understand fintech in general and also traditional financial markets because crypto does not exist in a bubble, but only once we see it in the light of what's happening with the Federal Reserve, the central banks, quantitative easing, can we really understand why is it moving and why does it do, why does it do what it does? Can I ask you a question? I think a lot of people are familiar with the narrative of cryptocurrency being sort of a hedge against having money in other types of assets or currencies where 
um, something like uh, trade sanctions might might affect prices. That was like very popular around March and April. I've also heard the opposite more recently, um, which is that it's all interconnected. So two very broad generalizations, like which side do you usually lean towards? Yeah, so um, I think that they're kind of like two sides of the same coin, to coin a phrase. Yeah. <laughs> As far as the day-to-day movements go, there is literally zero correlation between the stock market and uh, crypto. So for example, an example of that is uh, a lot of the time you'll get these economic data announcements, so like a GDP or employment data. And you know all traders across the globe are just waiting in front of their computer. The data comes out at 9.30. And then as soon as it comes out, everybody knows it and everybody trades on it. The markets start moving immediately. You can see an immediate reaction in the currencies, commodities, and stocks, and everything kind of jumps or dips at the same time. Um, those type of announcements have zero effect on uh, Bitcoin or any crypto for that matter because they are uncorrelated. And then if you look at the day-to-day correlation over the course of uh, the last 90 days, last 180 days or whatever it is that you look for those correlations, there is virtually no trend as far as that's concerned. So there's no real day-to-day correlation. However, there is a macro correlation that we can find and we can see it very easily on the charts, for example, on a year-to-year basis, right? So 2017, we all know, everybody that's, you know, trading crypto knows that that was a fantastic year for all crypto assets. Uh, Bitcoin itself went up, I believe, about a thousand percent that year. And that was just a small move compared to some of the others. But also the stock market went up astronomically in that year. I believe the uh, main indexes were up about 30 percent, which is phenomenal for a stock index. And some of the uh, tech stocks were up, you know, 100 percent or more. And then 2018 came and, you know, we all know the crypto winter, but also was a very volatile year for stocks. And then 2019, uh, early in 2019, we saw things going up again. That was both in the crypto and the stock markets. So on a time correlation, right, it wasn't to the day or whatever. But if you look at it on a yearly basis, there is this kind of uh, trend. And the reason for this is because the ones who control all the money on the planet, the central banks, right, the Federal Reserve in New York, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, the People's Bank of China, and the Bank of England, between those five, they control the amount of money in the world and how that money is used among banks. And if we look at those three years that we just mentioned, 2017 was a time that they were very generous with the money, that they had a very loose monetary policy. Uh, They kept interest rates low and they pushed a lot of uh, liquidity into the markets. People probably know it as quantitative easing, but uh, that's kind of a small part of it. And then in 2018, they decided that the economy was strong enough that they can start tightening up the monetary policy, raising interest rates and uh, offloading some of that liquidity. So that made the stocks volatile and it also had an effect on crypto as it seems. And then in 2019, they reversed course and they decided, okay, we were just kidding. Let's provide the markets with liquidity and low rates again. uh, And we can see the effect that it had both on the stocks and the crypto markets. That's interesting. And I read somewhere that that you are interested in sort of 
trying to tell or sort of uncover these macro stories behind how, how markets move. I, I'm interested in making money for, for me <laughs> and for my clients. So however we can do that, uh, usually that comes with a strong narrative, you know, as far as what's going on in the world and what's going on in the news. And then, you know, the, looking at the charts is just how we uh, pinpoint our entry and exit. Touche. I mean, we were just talking sort of about retrospective outlooks. Do you forecast at all in the cryptocurrency space? There's tons of people that ask about like, you know, what do you think? The, sort of like a, a joke question, but but what do you think mm-hmm. the price will be at the end of the year? Do you uh, do stuff like that for your clients? You're asked to do that? I, I have a, a great joke answer, which I always give if anybody asks me what the price of Bitcoin is going to be over any time frame. The answer is always anywhere between $100 and a million dollars. And that's with a 90% certainty. Uh, (laughs) So as far as I see, you know, forecasting the markets is a lot like forecasting the weather. Yeah. Um, You know, you're never going to get a weatherman who says there's a 100% chance of rain right? They'll say like 98% chance of rain, for example. I actually have a license from the European Union to give trading advice, but you'll never catch me doing it. I'm never going to say, hey, go out, buy gold right now because it's a good price. I'm never going to say, hey, the trend is strong on Bitcoin. Now is the time to buy. But rather, my philosophy is to give the clients as much information as I can for them to make an informed decision. Usually my bias will come out uh, in my writing or in my speech, but I I will never be in a position where I'll tell you now is the time to buy or now is the time to sell. Just to reiterate, why don't you do that? Because I don't want to give people bad advice. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Quite honestly. And even if I'm 90% certain that something is going to happen, there's always that you know, 10% chance that either A, I'm wrong, or B, I was right in my analysis, but something else external happened and changed the outlook. As Master Yoda says, you know, the future is always in motion. So we we can't never really predict the future as I see it. Yeah. And I want to talk about um, your your account on eToro um, and copy trading in general and all that stuff. Um, But before I get into that, I've also heard that uh, you started trading when you were like 13 years old. Wow, you have really done your homework, Dave. Thanks. There's nothing worse than a bad interview, right? So I started paper trading when I was 13. Uh, that basically consisted of, because that was before the era of the internet, of course, I would take my grandfather's Wall Street Journal and uh, just track the price of gold and, and silver and other commodities. That's kind of how that goes. Paper trading. So as somebody who is uh, was born in the 90s, can you explain paper trading? Yeah. So, well, paper trading well, has also evolved thanks to the internet. But the way it works is you write down a trade that you'd like to make, right? Say, for example, I have an imaginary $100,000 and then keep track of it and say, okay, on X date, I'm going to buy X amount of gold at, at this specific price. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you see how you perform over time without actually any money on the line. So these days it's a lot simpler because, you know, you can open up an account in eToro, which is absolutely free. And then you have a virtual account, which is, you know, $100,000 that you can play with. It's just basically just to see how it goes and to test the system and everything like that. But back in the old days, we had to do it the old fashioned way. So that's like the original way of, of, of measuring your progress. If you don't just have like digital data that's just, tra- you know, can chart your behavior and stuff like that. Exactly. Okay. So to get into the copy trading, I'm looking at your account and I'm copying you with like, 
a virtual account right now. Can we just talk about what your portfolio looks like right now? Just obviously you don't need to give any financial advice. I'm actually curious about your non-crypto products or just the fact that it extends beyond that because this show is the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. So mm-hmm. typically we're only talking about Bitcoin. It's interesting to see other things. Yeah, excellent. So um, actually one of my frustrations at the moment is that because I actually uh, you know, have a license, but eToro does not have a license to manage money. We, we have the copy trader feature, which allows people to copy other traders that are on the platform. But because I'm an employee of eToro, nobody can copy me on the live account. But uh, I have always happy to talk about my portfolio. And simply because you know, Bitcoin and the rest have not been performing stellarly uh, over the last month, I've kind of downsized them in my portfolio. In 2017, I I had as much as 50, even 60% on various crypto assets because they had such great momentum on them. Even as uh, recently as the first quarter, second quarter of this year, I had allocated a lot to Litecoin, Binance Coin, and, and those ones because they were doing very well. Right now... I'm looking at more like 7 or 8% crypto. And of course, that worked out very well uh, when Xi Jinping made that announcement from China and we had that single day surge of about 30%. I yeah. believe uh, every portfolio manager across the globe is very soon going to have easy access to trade in Bitcoin and going to understand the value of it as a tool for hedging your investments. Other than that, I can say that as an investor, the best strategy that I found that works best over time, I'm not talking about, you know, over the course of a month or two or a year, but over many years is to diversify your assets as much as you possibly can. So if you've got 10000 or $100,000, you're going to want to slice that into a million pieces and then invest in as many different sectors as you can that you believe have potential for growth. And there's a lot of sectors right now that I feel have tremendous potential in the coming decade or so. I, I want to hear more about those sectors, but I'm just curious. I've always heard diversification is better. Do you think there's an argument to be made that by diversifying to much, you could just kind of break even. Okay. So if you do not diversify and to be clear, some of the best gains that I've seen clients making in the world have been through single asset trading. Uh, we had a client in 2014 when the Euro was just kept falling and falling and falling. I think it was 2014, maybe before. And he was just taking out very high leverage positions with all of his accounts shorting the Euro. And he did phenomenal. I mean, the guy made millions, literally he bought several houses houses in Germany for his kids. But obviously, that's like a one in a million case. You have to get really lucky. You have to take that trend and you have to be willing to withstand the risk. Most of the time, uh, I've seen many more people, for example, saying, oh my gosh, the market is overpriced. Let me short it with everything I have. And then eventually they get wiped because the markets just keep trucking into new all-time high territories. And especially when you're short on something that the risk is that you there's no there's no real cap on how high they can grow. Uh, so you'll, you'll, you'll never be able to hold on to it. You have to time it exactly right. And that's really another one in a million trade. As far as diversification goes, certainly if you diversify and buy everything, then you probably, let's say if you're able to buy all the assets in the world, right? Just <laughs> imagine <laughs> that for a second. Yeah. Uh, then your portfolio would pretty much track the growth of the world's economy, which over the last few years is not too bad, right? Certainly, if the alternative is holding that in cash, 
the cash will probably get inflated out, uh, whereas the assets will rise in value. However, if you have a so-so track record for pinpointing the areas of potential growth, let's say even if you make, you know, 10 predictions as far as which sectors you think are going to do good, and only six of them pan out or seven of them, then you've still got excellent growth in your portfolio. Okay. And so what, what are these new sectors that you sound like you're, you're pretty interested in? Right. Crypto is obviously one of them. And, you know, even at uh, seven or 8% in my portfolio, I still feel that that's something that's significant that can definitely grow. Another one that I've been looking at with keen interest is uh, biotech, thing that has to do with biotechnology, gene hacking. I think that there are remarkable things that we're already seeing on the ground, patents that are coming into play and companies that are going to take advantage of that to do all sorts of wonderful things from boosting uh, crop output to potentially changing the way that we look at uh, life on this planet. I saw CRISPR in your portfolio. Yeah, CRISPR tech, I think, is, is just, an, it's just an amazing amazing technology. I think that people don't really grasp what this can do. I mean, sure, let's just say if, if we didn't have laws and regulations in place right now, we'd already be looking at, uh, you know, winged human beings uh, and so on, because we, we pretty much have this technology almost almost down. Seriously? Um, seriously. They've made, uh, you know, glow-in-the-dark pigs, for example, taking bioluminescence and grafting it into all kinds of mammal, mammals. Have, have you read the Neil Stevenson book, Fall? No. Okay. It's about wing people and you're just, you're barking up that. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying that it's a very real possibility that, you know, if there was no, obviously human testing is a very shady area, especially, you know, given the, the regulatory landscape. But uh, I, I'm quite certain that uh, had regulation not been an issue, we would have already been able to do that. But the, the, you know, obviously there are many other positive areas that can, that are already being done. And I believe that, that those can shed an enormous amount of growth over the next few years. The, the other one is renewable energy, clean energy, anything that has to do with clean energy, because the world is getting sick, literally, of fossil fuels lately. And that's already begun to work itself into the corporate level and the government level in many cr countries across the world where decisions are actually being made based on environmental impact. Regulation is changing and believe that it's only a matter of time before the world is completely independent of fossil fuels and we're able to get all of our energy from renewable sources. It's cleaner and in many cases, it's even cheaper and more economical. So why not? So as an investor, think about impact investing, but that's only just a part of it. Yes, we get to vote with our money on uh, the course of the future, but also some of those, some of these opportunities are going to be even more profitable as the world swings away from the old and into a new future. I believe that this is just an, an endless amount of uh, growth potential. Impact investing is an interesting idea. Do you ever think about impact investing consciously when you're trading? Because I imagine as someone at your level of trading, that's something definitely to consider as an afterthought. But I imagine it's difficult to, to plan your strategy around that. Um, well, if you're doing like day trading, then yeah, where it manifests itself is, for example, in crude oil. Uh, I haven't been on the buy side in crude oil for a very long time, but uh, I might take a short position every once in a while with a bit of leverage. Right. 
Uh, um, but as far as my you know long-term investing portfolio is concerned, it's not an issue at all. I mean, I, I have the stocks that I that I feel are, are are part of that. I don't really touch them on a day-to-day basis. They're just kind of in the portfolio and they sit there. Yeah, uh, and this is kind of getting to like, can you sort of describe the type or style of trading you do? Yeah, definitely. So Eddie Toro, as the senior market analyst, I'm basically a, a you know on a three-pronged front. So first of all, uh, as a customer facing, so assisting clients directly, the high equity clients. I'm assisting with the marketing team, of course, because they have uh, a lot of different initiatives that they do that are revolve around financial markets, uh, social media campaigns, and so on. And of course, uh, on the PR side, which is what uh, we're doing here, which is doing interviews with uh, people like yourself, or also Bloomberg or CNBC and Wall Street Journal and Financial Times and all the rest. So that's kind of where I sit within the company. But you know, like I said, my main, uh, the main thing that I'm doing is. Uh, to, to watch the markets, to explain them in a way that everybody can understand, uh-huh. and more importantly, that everybody can take advantage uh, when there are these huge potential moves. Yeah, and one of these potential moves, I guess that we've been seeing, and you recently wrote about, was uh, China's public announcement in, in a few different ways about um, yeah. a, about their adoption of blockchain technology. Could we talk about your piece a little bit? Sure. Obviously, like you brought up earlier, there's been a few price shifts that started, you know, back in like late October. What do you think this is going to mean for Bitcoin or cryptocurrency? And let's say like in in a year's time. Yeah. Um, So the announcement from President Xi Jinping, who is arguably the most powerful person on the planet, on October 25th, stating that China needs to seize the opportunities of blockchain. I believe that that was a watershed moment for blockchain technology and the wider crypto industry. Now, China doesn't generally dictate policy based on tweets, uh, unlike some other countries in the world right now. (laughs) Touche. <laughs> and um, th- their stance on blockchain has been well known for quite a while. This has been coming up in the judicial system there where they've on several occasions protected the rights, property rights of people based on assets that were found on the blockchain. So they found that, you know, people who own something on a blockchain, this is considered real possession, court of law. And their stance on Bitcoin was more like, you know, li- live and let live, but, you know, don't let people use it for nefarious purposes. And when, when when they say nefarious purposes, we're usually talking about capital flight, right? Because they have very strict capital conditions in China where they only allow people to take out X amount of money per year. And if, you know, if they want to take out more, they need to fill out special government forms. And generally speaking, those uh, those requests are denied. In 2017, they kind of banned Bitcoin trading because they didn't want people to use Bitcoin to get money out of the country. Yeah. And they kind of took a stance on Bitcoin mining not that they wanted to outlaw it outright, but that they wanted to, over the course of time, just kind of limit the activities and eventually get rid of it, which could mean you know a decade, two decades, a century, who knows. So just uh, last week, they reversed that second ban on Bitcoin mining, and it's no longer on the list of things that they want to eliminate. And I believe that there's a very real chance that they're going to reverse the first ban as well and start to allow some 
some level of Bitcoin trading in the country. That would be pretty big. At this point, it seems a lot more likely than it would have a month ago. You're saying before all of this news? Right, before the announcement from Xi Jinping and then the reversal of the mining ban. And then just yesterday morning, there was an article in the uh, state-run newspaper on the front page saying that Bitcoin was the first success of blockchain. So you've got all of this buzz in the media about blockchain. You know, the state has already banned people from calling blockchain a scam. So they're basically protecting blockchain technology by law now uh-huh. and saying that Bitcoin was the first successful application of that. So basically casting Bitcoin in a positive light. Um, so imagine you've got this growing industry, which we call Bitcoin mining in the country. What happens to all those miners who are holding all those Bitcoins that they've mined, right? You've got to open up a market for that. Now, yeah. they are going to be still concerned about capital controls. So my guess is that if they do reverse that ban, there will be some very strict oversight on that to make sure that they're tracking every single transaction, that they have proper KYC documents in place, something that was not happening in 2017. But very feasibly, they could do. It's not something that would take a whole bunch of extra resources for the Chinese government to be tracking transactions on the blockchain and where they're going and where they're coming from. Yeah, like a, like a blockchain analysis type type scenario. So, so how, how would you see Bitcoin trading if it were to, to uh, become legalized again in China? How would you see that interacting with this whole concept for the digital yuan that they also want to launch in China? Yeah, the digital yuan, I don't believe is anything inherently new on the ground, on the surface. It's more of a backend update as far as I see, right? Yeah. So they have you know, WeChat and Alipay, which are the main forms of payment. Cash is basically dinosaur in China. If you want to go pay in cash in a restaurant, you're going to have a very difficult time over there. Just about everybody's using mobile payments. So the digital renminbi is just is just just a backend upgrade where basically rather than those payments being settled up front by the companies, they'll be settled in the back by the People's Bank of China, which is the central bank. So essentially just putting a blockchain on on something that's already digital. That's correct. It's not the same as Bitcoin blockchain, which is open source. Anybody can run a node, anybody, right? We're talking about a two-tier blockchain system where the People's Bank of China is the first tier and they're basically the master node, as you would call it. Yeah. And then the second tier is companies, financial institutions within China. So that would probably be like Tencent and Alibaba and maybe a hundred others or who, who knows how many that'll verify and be the nodes of the network. Well, well, Mati, I, I don't want to get too much out of your comfort zone. So if you feel like I <laughs> go for it, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Ask yeah. Me anything. Well, okay. Yeah. So a lot of people say, especially um, our readers say that, you know, sort of the value of Bitcoin is that it's decentralized and it's open source. This digital yuan, I mean, it sounds a lot like just what people are using fiat money for now anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you see uh, any sort of level of competition between these two currencies, especially in the Chinese market, if they were both to be outlawed or uh, not outlawed uh, <laughs> in use? How do you mean? Like what sort of competition? So a a centralized cryptocurrency doesn't really sound like it really does anything new. So what I'm wondering is if you put that in place with Bitcoin, um, couldn't it just sort of turn everybody on to Bitcoin once they realize the value? No, 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 no. China's a different country. It's not like the United States where I, I would say the Libra... Uh, would have a danger of doing that to the United States. 
Um, okay. China, yeah, China is a, is a different country, is a different outlook and a different mindset. And I, I no, I, I wouldn't say so. And and just having a digital current, I don't think that even let's say, uh, let's say that the digital yuan is released in early 2020, as we think that it will be. I think that most Chinese citizens won't even won't even feel the change. Yeah. What it is, is it's a settlement uh, solution reconciliation solution so that the Chinese government can uh, have a better handle on the currency, how it's being used, how many are in circulation, just have a kind of a, a central or well, let's say centralized, decentralized database of the transactions in the country. And I think that would be helpful for them as far as monetary policy is concerned, right? And uh, let's say if they need to inject or subtract liquidity from the markets or just to kind of understand what's going where, that would be helpful for them. But I don't, that's, it's not it's not the same as having, you know, an, an open currency. I don't think that that's what uh, what China is about to do. Now, if they do reverse the ban on Bitcoin trading, um, I think that that would mainly be a separate market, which is very segregated from the mainstream population, but rather something that, you know, traders could take advantage of and that they would have some sort of a market where the miners can offload their supply in a way that is liquid, you know, that there's buyers and sellers all the time. But I don't think that that's, I think that they would be rather discouraging for people to, you know, get to a point where they would, I don't know, sell their house and buy Bitcoin with it, for example. Well, so outside of cryptocurrency, uh, do you invest at all or, or do do market analysis for blockchain related technologies or companies employing those technologies? Yeah, all sorts. I mean, a lot of what I look, I've I've written a, a book called The Complete Guide to Fintech Investing. So yeah, blockchain is increasingly becoming a big part of that. But it's only one part of, of fintech and only one part of investing. Of course, there's all, all kind of other interesting and exciting sectors. Are there any blockchain use cases you're particularly uh, excited about coming down the pike? Um, yeah, I mean, tokenization as a broad concept, I believe that digital assets that are traded as tokens on a blockchain are superior to traditional financial assets, which are held in a broker or, uh, and I don't think anybody really holds certificates in the safe anymore, but most financial assets are held, you know, with a third party. So the ability for an investor to custody their own assets, uh, I think is very exciting as well as the idea of fractionalization where you can let's say, take a, uh, you know, an apartment building in Manhattan, right, and then sell a million pieces of it to various investors, let's say each person buys 10 cents worth of that apartment building, and then, you know, will be able to reap their proportion of the uh, yield from the rent, and so on. I think that that's a very interesting concept, tokenization of art. The tokenization of art, I- I've read about that concept, but I haven't really seen that really taking place yet have have you read much about that i think that progress is somewhat limited there have been some successes i mean there have been auctions for example uh for internet art that have taken place but it's an exciting new field and i think that there is an endless amount of possibilities at the end of the day anything with value can be represented as a token uh on the blockchain yeah, it's it's a crazy concept. The last thing I was going to ask, recently a friend has sort of expressed to me that at least since 2017, crypto trading has gotten boring. I was curious to ask a professional trader and market analyst, what are your thoughts on that? 
boring i wouldn't say it depends really what uh, what you're trying to do with it right it is certainly a fascinating field and one that's progressing very quickly if you're trying to get rich i don't think you know rich quick scheme i don't think that, that it ever really was that certainly we've seen a lot of volatility but you know volatility goes both ways and there still is some level of volatility but my hope is that that especially in bitcoin and some of the top cryptos i hope that that tapers off over time i would actually appreciate less volatility in that it would be very helpful for the growth of the industry well those are all the questions i have madi thanks for coming on the show and real quick how could how could listeners uh subscribe to your newsletter but at the moment it's as a benefit for high equity clients in eToro. i see but stay tuned we'll uh maybe have an announcement on that later on oh right on all right thanks for talking anytime all the best Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. You can find us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine and you can find out about other engaging shows we produce by subscribing to our feed on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.